Welcome to Shit Chats. Today's episode is a conversation with Mianjin-based ceramic artist Bonnie Hislop. Bonnie's work touches on creative expression of the femme, challenging the boundaries of colour and scale traditionally found in the ceramic world. No. So my kind of where I wanted to lead with this was it's something that I I don't know if this relates to you, but it's a it's a theme that I see a lot online and with discourse is kind of how people interpret art and what art styles are always considered validated and then what styles are considered more lesser and like more of the crafty. So like you see this with a lot of like feminization of ceramics and crocheting and lace making and all of these very intricate, highly skilled crafts or art forms that are often very much like regulated to a very like more mature feminine kind of circle. And, you know, in a lot of modern art commentary, it's focused on painting and big sculptures and performance art. And that's kind of where the direction is. How do you, do you find that that has some resonance in your practice or do you find that that reflects in what you do? Definitely. This is something that I think about a lot and I reflect on a lot and I, uh, every time I come up with a new collection, I think about how it's going to be positioned and whether there is a place for feminine ceramics in contemporary art. And a little while ago, I sat down and thought about how often I see promotional images for ceramics competitions uh, or exhibitions. And a lot of the work at the top is still by men. Yeah. Even in these female dominated uh, mediums. Yeah. Uh, and then I, when I actually sat down and, and looked at what those people are drawing on, what uh, what topics their their uh, work is centered on, what they are exploring, I I started to realize that the work is still very masculine mm. if it's to be taken seriously. Yeah, yeah, and I I mean even find in like through doing art in school and studying, you can even acknowledge that a lot of the prominent female artists are a lot of the forefront of their work and I mean that's like by symptom of the patriarchy in the current setting is a lot about you know sexualization of women and things like that so if you are taken seriously as a female artist a lot of it's to do with oh you're talking about these very focused topics or you're talking about taking up space in a masculine space so there's not a lot of art that is just kind of in the sense for women by women about interests and pursuits that aren't this like oh this is what you can talk about in art because it's like this is this you know the struggle the strife you're going through and I feel like it's interesting because I've noticed that in your work it's actually just feminine and playful but also serious in a nature but it's not trying to fit into the male structure of like or like the masculine patriarchal structure of how art needs to be represented I feel like I don't know if that Um, that's very conscious on Mm. my part and I wanted to stay very soft uh, and for the work to be interpreted on a surface level in a soft way if that is the desire but also for there to be a deeper meaning to be interpreted if 
the wishes there as well. Mm. And often mm. those um, those secret meanings are literally hidden around the back of the pieces. Yeah. Uh, and it's my work. I I sort of say a lot is meant to be or is cute, fun feminism, not like angry fem- feminism. Yeah. So, uh, a, a man might look at the piece and and still say oh that's like that's cute and that's nice or you know that's lovely and non-threatening mm. um whereas there is like more butt um, yeah behind it yeah no I f- for those who know yeah exactly and i feel like that's what's often portrayed is like if you were talking about those kinds of experiences you have to do it in this masculine presentation of rage and emotion but you can use feminine emotion and feminine presenting symbols and color as a tool of communication whether that's communicating issues or problems and i feel like that's missed out on everyone you know there's often a lot of drive to conform to an angry portrayal but i feel like it's so missed out on the fact that you can use something it kind of fits naturally within the way you think and feel and view about the world into the way you portray art. Definitely. Yeah. I have to say that my work is not for men. In this way, I um, have often observed if um, if a message is is shouted, you often, or you, the global you, um, sometimes doesn't necessarily listen to the message, they listen to the shouting. Yeah, so I wanted the messages to be received by all audiences, but for there to be, for these messages like to you know to really resonate with femmes, yeah, not just females, um, but also like the feminine side of all people. Yeah, yeah. So I like a voice for a feminine expression. Yes. Yeah. No, I I find that really interesting. And what is what would you kind of describe your approach to your color palette from a more technical perspective? How do you um, feel your personal choice of color palette has kind of either evolved or developed over time? Or how do you feel like it best represents what you're pursuing? I think I like all of the colors always. And yeah. in recent years, I've really tried to uh, bring that down a little bit and not try and bring in everything all at once that I've I've really tried to um to to convince myself that I don't have to say everything in the one piece that there's time Mm. for for everything in good time uh but the pieces still are very colorful uh and or almost I think the pieces decide for themselves often I'll decide on a color palette and then I'll completely change it by the time I actually put paintbrush to the piece. Yeah, no, I find that that interesting. And I kind of want to like take a bit of a kind of a backwards focus in, you know, in your early development and like kind of as a teenager, as a young woman, um, how did you feel your connection to art develop and where did you see yourself professionally as an artist? kind of going back maybe 10 years when you were like leaving school or entering university and that kind of period in your life? Yeah, I, uh, I went straight into a fashion course, straight out of school. Uh, I, I really like clothes. I really like expressing myself through clothes. 
uh, and I really loved drawing and designing. So that's where I thought my art was going to go. In a very uh, practical sense, I am I'm not great at sewing, mm. and I and I'm not uh, very um, I'm not very mathy. I really struggled with a lot of the components of the course with all the pattern making and that kind of thing and realized very early on uh, that my my love was drawing and bringing ideas onto paper rather than constructing the garment. Yeah, no, for sure. So where did you, did you pursue ceramics straight away from the fashion course or where did your study and work kind of flow from that point? So <coughs> at the time. <coughs> All right, sweet. So at the time that I started that course, I had also just started selling my ceramics mm. at age 17 uh, and I started to do markets around 17, 18. I had been working with ceramics throughout my childhood. Yeah. My mum had a small studio at our house and I was able to develop a style uh, and some products through my teens. So while I was starting to embark on training for the career that I thought I would have, ceramics was already there in yeah the background. yeah so your your original thought and passion and drive that alongside that was just ceramic development kind yeah. of slowly but surely taking shape on its own Definitely. did you study any other courses or did you finish the fashion or did you end up switching out what was your kind of university journey with that I dropped out of the fashion course after six months mm. it just really yeah wasn't working I tried to make it work um and then I kind of floated for the rest of the, the year and did some non-accredited illustration classes and then got straight into uh an arts degree the next year uh and then moved across to to comms and PR yeah throughout that time and graduated with a comms degree majoring in PR yeah in so 2010 Oh, wow. Okay. So with communications and studying that PR degree, were there any kind of almost parallel concepts that you've taken from that into your arts practice and into your business and marketing? And because it's such a multifaceted operation, you don't just have the creation, you've got to create a brand and all of that. How do, do you think that the degree has lended itself to where you are today in a lot of ways? So I think that attending university in general helped me really center my thoughts and helped me uh, bring all these abstract like thoughts and feelings that I had and focus them more. Um, but even while my my major was PR, I was still very interested in the human condition and the oddities mm. of like the human experience. Um, and I was tasked with doing a like a thesis as my or like a mini research paper as my main project for my for the end of my degree and 
I, I should have probably or could have done something uh, related to PR and I cho chose to do a paper on uh, the Twilight series, um, Twilight's contribution to the abstinence movement of America. Right. <laughs> That's really interesting, yeah. actually. Um, do you mind kind of touching on a little bit of a brief overview of how Twilight actually contributed to the abstinence movement because that's not a theory I've heard of personally but that sounds really interesting. So I was looking into uh, like the the efforts at that time um, running like in terms of like purity balls and, and that kind of thing in, and religious efforts to encourage teenagers to abstain from sex before marriage and then looking into uh, Stephanie Meyer's uh, literary contributions uh there's very strong abstinence themes within twilight mm. um and i would go in and, and do my sessions with my supervisor and he would just like read this ridiculous text aloud while we mapped out on the whiteboard and we um deduced that the message of the book is really uh sex is better after marriage but it's best when you're a vampire um yeah yeah so it's look it's not a strong um argument but we also looked into um contributing literature like lolita and like that no kind of for sure and it's i mean like the interest or sort of irony from that is the, the there's an internet theory that kind of connects um the 9-11 attacks to My Chemical Romance and then that yes. inspiring the um, Academy, or no, 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 that inspiring Stephanie Myers to write Twilight, which oh, then inspired the Twilight was the the a fan fiction based off Twilight was what became Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. So there's this complete chain of events in like the early 20, 2020s that kind of culminated in Fifty Shades of Grey just existing and it's really interesting to see that passage because Fifty Shades of Grey is very much directly um, taken from the author's original fan fiction which was Twilight and I think I can't know if I'm correct or not but like some sort of Harry Styles Twilight connected and then turned into like a marketable the uh, kind of book about you know which appealed to, you know, your, your middle-aged women kind of demographic. So that's kind of ironic to think that it's like the undertone is purity culture, but it inspired a, an, erotic. an erotic novel series, which is really interesting, but I find that kind of funny because that's, the, you know, the takeoff from there is that, you know, obviously that's a, it's a very against the concepts of purity culture. So I think that's kind of interesting. I looked into that as well in the research paper that um, like abstinence does not necessarily um, like negate the absence of eroticism. Mm, no, for sure. That's that's like an interesting kind of point. Um, kind of going into back more on, you know, personal development track or anything like that. Um, when it comes to developing like a business or a brand when did that kind of start becoming your focus from oh, making these products and selling them or making art and selling them to kind of like developing an online image or presence? Like how do you, how would you represent your transition from those kinds of things? Sure. 
I think for me, I always found it very important to remain a person rather than a brand so mm. that I had no, a little sure. bit of, yeah, um, freedom of movement in and an ability to change my mind at yeah. all times. So for me, while I was developing products and, and that kind of thing, I felt like I hadn't yet centered it, but now whatever I create, I feel does like have a very, um, have a very distinct aesthetic to it just because of all the different like pieces and all the different facets of my practice. They all tend to like come back to a, a recognizable aesthetic, but it's yeah. not necessarily, um, I, I don't limit myself. Mm, no, for sure. And like, I don't know if this is kind of taking on that, but do you think using like not so much of an alias, but more of like an overarching, oh, sorry, the noise outside, <laughs> the overarching kind of having Dablis Studio yes. as an, a business entity and then yourself as an artist, do you think, was that like a conscious decision to have a bit of separation? Yes. Yeah. That was a conscious decision. I was already teaching the course that I developed um, separately and then has become um, part of Dabla, Dabla it, exclusively. I'd already developed that and then gave that to Dabla. Yeah. Um, so Dabla is very much essentially the, the same philosophy as myself yeah but dabbler is a we and yeah. i am just a me so yeah dabbler has taken on a life based on the audience like and the students that come yeah so in. yeah so dabbler is very much education workshops yeah. community and then that allows you as an individual artist to have a bit more focus on your own practice in your own work yeah. versus having it be very you know crissy crossy and getting too mixed up you've got that nice separation Definitely. yeah and um where was your first independent studio what was your first kind of breakout into creating your own space to work in and teach out of and everything like that so prior to this space I was in a co-working studio a few streets over in Maruka mm. uh, and that was that was a space I shared in the end with seven other people. Oh wow. By the time we, um, we all dissipated uh, and that was so good. Before that I had been working in my garage yeah. at home and um, ironically I'm going back to working in the same garage. In a couple yeah, of months. Okay. So it's kind of like built up and up and up and up and now I am looking to bring it like back down and more simple for a little bit. Yeah, no, for sure. So there's that studio and then while I was in that studio uh, and then in this studio, uh, soon after I had a, a shop in the valley for mm. a year in 2019. Oh, wow. No, yeah. that's nice. Do you prefer having your own 
kind of space or mostly your own space obviously because Dabler and all the other teachers kind of operate out of the space at the moment or did do you prefer having your own space or do you enjoy having like a bigger shared space or are there kind of like benefits to each there are benefits to each I I really enjoy having a co-working space at the moment uh I'm I'm really enjoying the idea of um making things really simple and having some quiet time to myself. Yeah. I really enjoy being around people, but I'm also very much an extroverted introvert. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, you've got yeah. that, you've got that social outlet with people, but then when you are functioning and working, you also prefer that independence as well. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No. I can only really concentrate and knuckle down on certain parts of my practice when I have complete silence mm. um, and no other energy in the room. Yeah, Because not I find sure. I'm very sensitive, like I'm very empathetic to like other energy. Yeah. So sometimes to have complete focus, I really need to have no nothing no other energy yeah and, and like I mean I'm kind of assuming but you know if you've got other people who aren't as like established in what they're doing as maybe you are you also feel that need to kind of assist as well over your own so would that kind of be the case where you're also constantly when other people are around helping them with what they're doing and not able to focus on your own when it's, um, when it's in terms of this studio perhaps uh where there are just certain like contained sessions yeah definitely which is like which is what i prepare for oh for sure yeah so if um when we have like our wonderful friday night uh open studio sessions i make sure i'm working on something that i can work on around people yeah in a co-working uh space i find that it does tend to be a little bit different after a while. Everybody goes into their own separate, like, vortexes. Yeah, no, for sure. So that's a bit different. Um, but I also am kind of jealous of all of my students' ability to concentrate and work on pieces and produce beautiful work in company. Because yeah. it's something that I've just never been able to do. Uh, when I've done courses in the past, I've very rarely produce work or what I would deem good work in, yeah. in a class atmosphere, but I'll absorb the, the learnings Yeah. And go home and think about it and apply those to my own practice. No, so for sure. It is like, it is a conscious um, thought process of sitting down and going, what am I going to make? How does this fit into my practice? How does this fit into my philosophy? How can I reproduce this? How can I make it different um, every time? Or how many different um, color options will there be of this? Is this uh, a feasible option in, in terms of those things? No, for sure. And I mean, like, I found that with some of the stuff I've done as well, I feel like in a controlled assigned or course kind of framework you at least for me I constantly think about what are the outcomes I need to achieve for this thing that I'm paying for whether it be a university course whether it be a, like a workshop or something there's always this perception of 
oh, I've, I've got to get A, B or C out of this. So like even when I was, I mean, art is not my main focus, but when I was doing art for school, I always felt like I kind of underperformed to my own ability in the sense that I was doing a lot of stuff, but it was just very much not exactly how I wanted to completely expand because there was always like a brief or like a focus that you had to center yourself around. Whereas where I was kind of left alone to do my own thing, you know, sporadically pick up work to do, I found that I was getting a lot more out of it, but then also it turned out a lot, you know, a lot better. It's probably not the best English use, but it just turned out with a lot, like the result was a lot more beautiful and had detail and was very well thought out. So it's interesting how under, you know, like a structure, you often find yourself underperforming versus under a like free boundary in a sense. I think there's a lot more pressure as we grow older for our creative expressions, um, for the product of those creative expressions to be successful in inverted commas. Whereas as children, there are so many more opportunities to be creative and if you if you stuff up then you've got tomorrow yeah but I think we we do ourselves a disservice in a way like it's it's just the way that life goes and the way that society is kind of built that creativity isn't um you know put to the forefront and mm. anytime that we have an opportunity to to learn new skills, they're often expensive. Exactly. Um, and organized around our work and our schedules. And so there's a very big product over process. For sure. Yeah. And that's not, that's not anything, that's not anybody's fault. Mm. I know I've kind of noticed a lot and I don't know if you've noticed it with students who come to your classes, because obviously your creative work is your, money-making enterprise in a sense but I feel like a lot of the time people probably in good nature suggest to oh this is a thing you like doing you're you know half good at it or you're good at it you should make a side hustle from it it's this like side hustle like I'm I mean my mum's an artist I don't really have any intention to do any physical creative art in for money but whenever I would make something semi-interesting, a lot of people would be like, oh, you should start selling that or I would buy that from you. But the thing is, it's not just about making work and selling it. It's about is this creative endeavour just something that you enjoy doing? Because you can just enjoy doing it. You don't need to challenge every enjoyable activity into a money-making enterprise and that's kind of the focus oh, you like crocheting, you should start crocheting stuff for money. You know, like you like doing this, you like playing music. Have you thought about playing music for money? But it's like you can just enjoy creation outside of that monetized kind of space that people seem to forget so frequently. It's definitely definitely appealing to work for yourself or make artwork. For for sure, yeah. It definitely changes the shape of the art or it has definitely for me yeah in making art for a specific audience and yet that was the recipe 
for success success is a weird word mm. but the recipe for uh allowing me to make ceramics full time yeah uh was to to finally sit down and consciously think of a product that people would want to buy mm. and i actually mm. i when i um decided to focus on ceramics as a medium mm. i sat down and every now and then like, periodically i would sit down and physically write down who i who am i what do i stand for what um issues do i want to comment on mm. and that kind of thing to just recenter myself yeah also just remind myself what my um brand identity was and come up with a strategy even though my identity is essentially just me yeah uh, i still found it very important and i did th- i do think the pr degree really helped with that yeah no for sure so i sat down and i said okay what do people like what do people like universally universally and something that will never uh something that will never date yeah no for sure just cats and dogs Um, kind of what I wanted to talk about now as a bit of a transition is I've noticed in a lot of your work and practice a lot of pink everywhere and in like a lot of your clothing and everything like that kind of leading into the art for femmes kind of concept how do you like what do you see do you feel like drawn to the color pink in a lot of ways and because I've seen a lot of people doing like, you know, taking back pink as like a positive colour and it's, you know, there's like powerful colour in a sense. What are your feelings on the colour pink? I have always been really drawn to pink uh, throughout my life. I've, I've re- I'm really drawn to pink. I'm really drawn to red. And I, you're right, like I'm seeing a lot of reclaiming of pink as a colour and almost as a neutral. And this phrase, yeah. you know, I pink is my favourite and I refuse to to pretend it's not anymore. I really mm. relate to that notion. Uh, I think there was a, a long time where I I thought, oh, I should I should create at least some work that hasn't pink, got pink in it, um, or it's not really a colour like for interiors. And my hands just will not let me. Yeah. <laughs> really create things without pink in them. It doesn't feel right yeah now now i've i've started to branch out a little bit more now that i've convinced myself i don't have to use every single color in every single piece yeah um but i i really have to like hold myself back from not putting pink on everything yeah but i mean like pink is sort of this kind of it's color with a lot of like negative connotations in a sense that it's like you know people kind of go, well, you know, that's the little girls like pink, you know, Barbie pink and all this like super like dainty feminized notions of pink. But I've just, it's really inspiring to see so many people take pride in identity with such bright colors. Like you see artists like Peach, PRC, the music artist, um, her entire space is pink like she has pink everything and it's just it's really cool to see that 
in kind of like, yeah, that kind of like power of femininity in a way that, you know, often gets suppressed as like not genuine or not serious. So it's really nice to see pink being like pushed out. It's this cool symbol colour in a sense because like, like I don't know if you resonate with that at all. Definitely. I'm so happy to see the mentality changing. I've also uh, spoken with quite a few male-identifying uh, friends and people who are, I think, finding that they're able to to be proud of the fact that they they that themselves love pink. Yeah. And are, are finding it, you know, safer in these times to to really lean into that, which is so refreshing. Uh, that that it's just it's even I think it's less of a like a symbol color and a statement color than it used to be yeah. in a good way. Yeah. That it's you know, that it is becoming an observed neutral. Yeah. No, I like, I like that notion yeah. a lot. And I mean, it's interesting because historically you'll look at old videos from like the 20s and, you know, 1910s and you see and people discuss pink being a very much the colour for little boys because light blue, baby blue was very much like a dainty colour, like light blue was, you know, associated with, um, you know, the sky and the calm sea and a lot of those things you don't see you know, that was a very much feminized color. And then you had pink being more of a powerful, exuberant, joyful color that, you know, was very much attached to young men and young boys. And it's quite interesting because it was seen as a subset of red. <coughs> Excuse me. And red is always powerful. a powerful color. Yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, through the rebrand, especially in the early 2000s, it was very much associated as a fairly powerless color considering what colour it's derived from, you know? And it very much is a rebrand. I I love the idea of of thinking of it that way, that pink was rebranded. I've heard once that uh, dandruff shampoo, like in the, um, the marketing behind dandruff shampoo, was like was how dandruff became a negative seen as a negative like disgusting thing because before that people didn't really care like if if people had dandruff um and then all of a sudden in order to sell the shampoo they convinced people that it was something to be worried about yeah i think we're so gullible and we're such you know we just want to be part of the crowd so often yeah society that you know it's very much you know these are all just trends basically essentially and you know we're we're not wearing pink anymore and everyone goes okay yeah and i mean that's the same thing with um body hair as well because in world war ii because there was a nylon shortage because nylon were being used for, you know, parachutes and other war-related things. Um, nylon tights weren't very accessible. So women obviously just had their bare legs a lot more, especially in the workforce. So, <coughs> excuse me, 
a lot of uh, razor companies were like, oh, there is a huge market now because who's doing a lot of financial purchases right now is young women, women in their 20s who would have been religiously wearing nylon stockings. So they created advertising campaigns, especially in the United States and UK, it kind of seeped into other cultures where you should remove your leg hair because then it would appear that you had no stockings on, no stockings. And that kind of, so they kind of created a lot of negative connotations around leg hair and that bled into underarm hair and, you know, a lot of other things like that. And it's because, oh, look at this revealed thing that you can't hide anymore with a stocking because normally people had no thoughts because you'd just be wearing flesh, flesh or black stockings so that it wouldn't be an issue for you in your day-to-day life. But then they were like, oh, it is an issue. And here's your solution. It is our razor that you can buy. And it's Gillette that actually started that process. And it was like, oh, your leg has ugly. You need to shave it off. So it looks like you're wearing stockings because you can't buy stockings right now. But what you can buy is our product. So it's all surrounded with product sale. It would never have been a cultural thing if it wasn't for selling products. Mm. And you see that with so many other things and aspects. Um, kind of want to go into a question. I was, I meant to ask this at the beginning, but it doesn't really matter. I was kind of interested to see where do you, it's a job interview question, but where do you see yourself, I suppose, in like a five year period almost in terms of like personally, as well as in your practice? That's so interesting. I, um, I tend to think of each year as its own beast and I try to mm. bring in a, a new goal for each year, but I don't necessarily think five years ahead. However, I have thought um, like 40 years into the future. Interesting. Um, so mm. I, I don't have a clear five-year goal, but I have a goal for for when I'm in my 70s and 80s. Yeah. Anytime I think about um, like deviating from ceramics or deviating for the plan or quitting or or that kind of thing, I go, well, you have to keep going because this is all for the retrospective. Yeah. This is for for you in 30 years kind of thing. In my mind of myself as a little old lady surrounded by like all of this work of all different scales, of all different, like potentially mm. of all different mediums. Exactly. No, I find that interesting and it's kind of why I pose the question because how people answer in a non-job interview setting, obviously, but in a casual setting kind of indicates how they think about things because I hate that question personally. I don't think about five years ahead. I don't think about anything, but I have ultra-specific 10 or 15 or 20 year goals I have like ultra specific what I'm going to be doing when I'm 30 or what I want to be doing when I'm 30 but I have no idea where I'm going to be at 21 yeah which is kind of like in five years or three years but like or at 22 or 23 like you know where it's like where am I going to be in order to get myself there I have no clue I have no idea I've just got this ultra specific thing at 30 I want to be doing this but I don't have any plans for the next five years. And it's almost because I feel like if you have 
like obviously it's completely fine to have a five-year one-year ten-year kind of those kind of rigid goals if that works but for me it's if I've got a plan for five years that puts so much more weight into the decisions I'm making every day if you've got like oh for me at 18 now at 21 I want to be graduated uni I want to be doing this and this then every single decision I make about my study and every single decision I make about career moves revolves around that very short time frame because in the retrospect five years is a short period of time so it's like you've yeah so you've got such a short and everything's influencing your decisions whereas yes I have a very specific long-term goal but what I'm choosing now is not stressing me out about it that makes sense like me then choosing to do less subjects per semester is not editing being graduated by 21 because that's not a goal I have anymore and it's still benefiting to the end kind of like that 10-year point so yeah I personally don't find that that five-year kind of concept works with me and I find it interesting that it doesn't with you in the same sense as well because it's like if this is a five-year plan it needs a now action and that is daunting there's so much out of our control right now as well for sure there's so much uncertainty and I think like having very rigid plans, especially in this socio-political climate, but yeah. also just climate um, is uh, not helpful. Like, no. There's just, to me, I, I, I don't know if you can sense this, but I feel an overwhelming sense of collective fatigue right now. For sure. And just this massive yeah. hangover from the last two or three years. No, definitely. And I think that having such rigid goals in the current climate, especially if you're in like the creative industries or, you know, those kinds of things, or just in general, I feel like those rigid goals come with a lot of privilege definitely. as well because definitely. I can't confidently say I'm going to be graduated by a certain point because with you know my own personal experiences with chronic illnesses and things like that realistically that might not come into fruition realistically I could lose my job realistically you know so many of those other factors come in so because I don't have my parents necessarily paying for my uni or paying for my you know like uni accommodation there's no guarantee that I have the support to continue with this goal so I think for a lot of people it's the same where it's like you can make a goal, but not many people have the privilege to know that if they stay on their right track, they'll get there because you've got so many other factors interwarping with that that will like completely shunt you. And I think, you know, you don't have to have a very depressed view on it and think, oh no, the world's going to end. But I think a realistic view that you can get completely thrown off track. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. A very healthy, um, mentality right now to hold our goals loosely mm. except that they may the shape of those might change yeah but also i think it's quite interesting to to be observing uh, a lot of people who are in uh safe industries or safe jobs are experiencing lack of safety yeah in those and i do think like on the other side of it i i have found myself saying to people quite often recently you know why wouldn't you you know pursue the things that you really want to do right now seeing as 
you may very well fail at what you don't want to do there. And I feel like that's a I feel like that's a Jim Carrey quote. I think he in a speech talked mm. about how um how there can be such un- uncertainty in like safe industries and that's I I feel the truest right now. Mm. No, I, I I kind of think that's very poignant in a lot of the sense that it's like, you know, normally you you have that safety. So it's like, well, realistically, I can't afford to deviate from the safety. But when you kind of get into a place where safety is scarce for literally everyone, unless you've got like stacks and stacks of money somewhere, you know, um, when safety is so rare, it's less you're losing less if you fail on what you're pursuing. Definitely. Mm. Definitely. So I don't know if that makes sense, but if your previously like very, very stable job is now not so much stable, if you leave that industry to go pursue something else, your loss if you lose out is much lower than what it would have been maybe three or five years ago. So so while I think it's healthy to... To hold goals loosely i also think it, it's like well if like you may as well yeah no for sure and is that because were you working professionally in like a nine-to-five setting before going to ceramics full-time or so i was I, again i already um started doing markets and started yeah my ceramics. yeah i was doing a lot of theater oh, okay. uh, in my like late teens early 20s as well i've I feel like I kind of put art a little bit on hold while I just like had fun with my friends on stage. That's interesting. For about six years. Uh, and then when the, those friends who, uh, a lot of whom were a little bit younger than me, when they graduated high school and went to uni and studied musical theatre or studied theatre, I then went back to real life yeah. as my main um creative pursuit and I was working in a nine-to-five setting as an EA, an executive assistant um, for a multinational company um, at that time. And I had the advantage of having a stable position Mm, at that time mm, as well and was also able to reduce my hours and change my role within that company yeah. over that six-year period yeah, and had the support of the company uh, to gradually bring my art to the forefront. Yeah, that's interesting. You've got that you've got that security, but the security also allows you to slowly venture into a more risky kind of pathway as well. Um, also recently something I wanted to kind of chat about is you've got a lot of like visual, almost performance art in a sense, I don't know, that's kind of how I interpret a lot of your social media, which I'll link um, when I publish the episode. But a lot of what you're doing is very much like you've got your ceramics, but it's also like just this beautiful performance of colour and fabric that I see. And it's really interesting. And um, I guess how do you feel doing a lot more photo shoots and, you know, things like that in your like public or digital persona it feels very natural to me it also feels like something that i've i've started to get that little like itch to 
to go back to um, not necessarily doing theatre productions, but I mm. have this theatrical side of me that I haven't been nurturing um, for a long time. And it's only been recently that my art has become something that I've been able to channel my own personal experiences and my own curiosity and yeah. my own observations of human experience yeah. into. And really through the connection with a photographer named Melanie Hines, mm. uh, have I really started to explore uh, like more interpretations like of these pieces and the performance art side of it. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it really is uh, a collaborative effort. These shoots are not just mine. They're very much uh, Melanie's vision yeah. and creative expression. And often we will discuss what the intention of the piece is and she will create a photographic concept around that. Yeah, it's almost like you are playing a role in the production of your work rather than directing. Which is what I always loved about doing theatre. Yeah, so it's... It's, it's, it's like playing, it's like really getting to... And I feel excited when you start to ask me about this and when I start to talk about it because it feels like the excitement of the unknown and fulfilling a brief and... Um, and and being directed again, mm. which is which is what I always enjoyed so much. Yeah, but then like you know, the interesting tie together is it's that the performance you're doing is it's representing you know something you have made, but yeah. then you you're not in control of that process. Someone else is, and it's it almost allows you to life. detach. Yeah, in a sense, um, kind of you know, kind of deviating from that. What are you working on at the moment with your creative processes and what are you building and making? So what I'm working on at the moment is uh, developing and establishing, I think, three distinct facets of my practice. Mm. Uh, the teaching side for the next year, my goal for the next year is to focus on my own work more so. Yeah. Um, and bringing my uh, workspace down in scale. Is yeah, that no, for well. sure. Uh, so in in order to to focus on my own work, I am downgrading to a home studio. Yeah. And I will, uh, hopefully, the goal is to have my functional wear, my utilitarian wear um, for markets and then mm. uh, a design range of pieces yeah so sort of design functional wear as in like like cups and so cups yeah plates um yeah yeah so usable pieces versus visual things versus like more conceptual work so, yeah so functional then design range then more conceptual yeah work. No, for sure. Larger scale work. What what is the kind of distinction between that conceptual and the design range? So the design range would not necessarily be um, centered on uh, social commentary yeah. necessarily. Um, pieces that exist just to be beautiful. Yeah. In their own right, uh, and then the more conceptual sort of gallery 
yeah so your design range is maybe your really pretty sculpture or like a pretty little cat on the shelf kind of thing yeah and repeatable designs so often uh i will have repeated motifs in my work Mm, Um, mm. and for those works i intend to really lean into those like my polka dots and um, yeah then there's like cosmic sort of motifs and more botanical motifs and i feel like i can really springboard off that and create cohesive collections centered on those visual motifs without them necessarily needing to be greater um like embedded messaging yeah for sure and i feel like that's a good i like that you've got it into like three sects where you've got it into like stuff that's like people use people will buy an easy in and out stream of products that create you know revenue as a primary funding of everything else but then also allow people who you know don't necessarily have the money for gallery level design pieces in their home because you know a lot of art is still inaccessible and I don't think that's a critique on the artist I just think that's more of a like a reflection on reality because you know, for a lot of sculpture, sculpt, um, sculpt, sculptors, your big pieces take an enormous amount of time. Totally, and I was about to say, it feels really healthy to have these three um, like income streams, but also these three facets, because if I am pouring my whole soul into these large-scale conceptual pieces all the time, um, they do like really impact me emotionally mm. and I don't think I could spend every hour of every day of my work life on those pieces there needs to be yeah and I think that's the benefit with a more functional medium as well because you see artists and I mean like in the 70s where everything they were doing was conceptual it was all these big hugely personal commentary works and a lot of them ended up being like hard drug addicts to kind of cut around the corner like because it's such out of that space it requires a lot more so i feel like there's a benefit with ceramics and stuff like that because you can make beautiful like connecting pieces that are really touching but you can also make mugs that you can sell that you don't have to like pour your entire being into and that can make you money and that can allow you for that balance so it's almost like like having the ability to make function and craft is like an interesting privilege in the art world because so many other mediums it is all just soul imagery and commentary and it's there's no option for diversion almost yeah um do you think with like part of your removal from like a teaching space is that because a lot of like at least from like what I've heard from people like who've had to do workshops and not teaching workshops, a lot of it, it becomes, you do the workshops, you know, obviously to inspire and teach and other people, but you need the big space to hold the workshops and you need to have the workshops to pay for the big space. It's like the cycle. So do you think you're kind of like escaping that in a bit by downgrading in size from what you're working from? It's also uh, a big factor has also been the fact that I've had two large kilns for a number of years and that really dictates being able to house those kilns 
um, like is really what has dictated like the space that I mm. ended up in mm. because they both require three phase power, uh, and then you know the space then you know has a certain amount of rent and you have to pay for the rent and then it's yeah it's it's the spiral. Yeah, like, are you you're downgrading your kiln sizes when you move or? I, yes, that's the intention. Okay, yeah. yeah. So you, you kind of sort of but not completely limit yourself and what you could create so it's more of a focus on you in a sense? In a certain way, yes. And it's, it is something that I'm thinking about that it is a shame in that way that um, reducing the size of the space and changing proximity um, like of – the workspace to the kilns um, does mean that my work may become smaller at least mm. the time where I'm just starting to get a real nice groove of pushing the scale of my pieces. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's never been the most important part of it. Yeah. I think it was very important in the last couple of years to prove that I could build big. Yeah, and there's so there are so many amazing emerging ceramicists and established ceramicists. Ceramics has gone from being a medium that had a lot of prestige around it, had a lot of, and a lot of privilege, um, but was seen as something that not everybody could do because not everybody had access to the machinery. Um, with uh, the the boom of ceramics continuing. Um, over the last five years, it's it's become a very common hobby and yeah. side hustle and yeah. career. And making good work is less impressive now. Um, mm. Scale is still impressive. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, you kind of feel like you're fitting into the new conditions of the, the realm in a sense. I think, and I think I'm comfortable with reducing the scale of my work, having having now shown people that I can build big. Yeah, but it's no. not something. I mean, I would very much love to to make large pieces again or continue to make them. Yeah. But it's the the messaging of it is definitely more important than the no, for sure. Scale. Thank you for listening please check out the show notes for Bonnie's social media and the podcast Instagram account for some extra photos of her work. This podcast is being recorded on the unceded lands of the Turbal and Jagra people of the Yagara Nation. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging.